Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Very kindly, Woody's already read some of the passage for us, but we're going to be in verses 15 uh, down into 25. uh, And we're going to, I'll preach through the whole chapter, but I'm going to read to you uh, 15 through 25 here in just a moment. 15b down through the end of verse 25 here in just a moment. As you're opening up there, uh, thank you so much for being here today. What a great way to kick off the new year. It's a joy to get to gather and worship together today on this first Lord's Day of the new year. In 2022, we began a series through First and Second Samuel, and we're now in the final uh, final leg. I'll finish that up uh, this spring, Lord willing, and, and then we've got other plans that'll be coming down the pike in terms of preaching later this year as well. But uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach through big books, big chunks of the Bible. Uh, I love to be able to do that. I think it's uh, the best way to do it. I think it's for our, all of our benefit, mine and yours. And so uh, thank you for so joyfully receiving the word in this way. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15b, the second half, uh, down into verse 25. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning in verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And David therefore sought God, verse 16, on behalf of the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. The servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him. And he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child dies, you died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. She bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel. And we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together in worship on the Lord's day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. 
He had been an official in our town for a long time, held a prominent position, was universally respected, wealthy, well-known for his philanthropy, had donated considerable sums for an almshouse and an orphanage, and besides that, did many good deeds secretly that weren't known until after his death. Thus is the description that Fyodor Dostoevsky provides for a character known only as the mysterious visitor in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov. This mysterious man visits a character called Zosima, who had left himself at the mercy of his opponent during a public duel. They'd come together for a duel, he didn't take the shot, and the guy missed, and then Zosima dropped his gun. And this so moved this mysterious visitor that he came to Zosima as a young man and ultimately, it led him ultimately to confess to a murder from 14 years earlier. This mysterious visitor had in passion and uh, anger murdered a woman 14 years earlier and since then had kept this murder quiet. He had kept it silent. Nobody knew that he had done it. And during this time, as you've heard described, he became very successful. In fact, he went on and had a family, children, a wife. And yet, despite having moved on, despite having seemingly gotten away with this grave sin, despite having respect and success and all the things that you might want in this life, guilt for the murder had been gnawing at this mysterious visitor. So, through Zosima's example and through his counsel, eventually the mysterious visitor decides to publicly confess to the murder. He brings a great group of people together. He provides evidence. He demonstrates to everyone that he actually did what he did. And yet nobody believed him. Everybody thought he was insane or was losing his mind. In fact, he wound up being sent to a psychiatrist to, to get some care because nobody believed that he actually did what he said he did. Nonetheless, uh, as he is believed to be insane, he immediately begins to get sick. Sick to the point of death. And he's finally on his deathbed. And finally, despite the protests of friends and family who thought Zosima is who drove him crazy, Zosima finally shows up and is able to talk to him. And I want you to hear what this mysterious visitor says on his deathbed. He's lost everything. He's dying. People think he's crazy. And yet, what does he say? God has pitied me and is calling me to himself. I know I'm dying, but I feel joy and peace for the first time after so many years. I at once felt paradise in my soul as soon as I had done what I had to do. Now I dare to love my children and kiss them. Ask a simple question to you this morning. What if your worst nightmare is your greatest hope? What if those, what if the exposure and repentance that right now you're thinking about? What if that's actually the only way to the joy you're looking for? 
What if those clouds that you so much dread are big with mercy and are soon to break with blessings on your head? What if that which you dread is actually a path to joy? What if your worst nightmare is actually your greatest hope? Nothing, nothing looms over the head of sin and sinners like fear of exposure. Fear of exposure. And fear of exposure is ultimately a fear of repentance. It's a fear of having to make things right when it comes to our sin. This morning, I want to show you three truths about sin and repentance. Three truths that I think will help lead you to repentance. And I think three truths that will also help you understand what God is doing in the midst of sin. Hear hear me carefully. Three truths about sin and repentance this morning. Here's the first. Repentance is a sign of God's grace. Repentance is a sign of God's grace. It's a sign of... Of grace. Now, I want to refresh our memories because it's been a while. Uh, sort of intentionally, I left everyone uh, sitting in David's sin over the course of Christmas break. And so we got done with the sin with Bathsheba. And the last thing we heard, you might remember, and if this is your first Sunday, let me catch you up just a little bit. David the king, the righteous king, the man after God's own heart. The man whom God had put on the throne has at this point taken another man's wife, slept with her, committed adultery with her. She became pregnant. And instead of coming clean and doing the right thing, he created a series of events to try to make a situation where her husband would sleep with her to hide the fact that David had committed adultery with her, make it seem like it was his child. And yet those things didn't work. Uriah the Hittite, her wife, Bathsheba's wife, Bathsheba's husband, proving himself to be more righteous than the king. Finally, with no other recourse, David has Uriah killed in battle. Now, the Lord makes no qualms about it. David was guilty of the murder of Uriah. Despite despite the fact he used another man's sword, despite the fact he used another man's commands in battle, David was guilty of sin before the Lord. Not only the adultery, but the lying and the murder as well. And yet we're left at the end of chapter 11 when David seems to have covered everything up. When everything seems to happen, he's married Bathsheba. He's welcomed a child into the world and all seems to be right. And yet the author reminds us at the very end of chapter 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so in chapter 12, we begin to see the process of God unearthing, uncovering David's sin, exposing David's sin. He sends the prophet Nathan to him. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And so he begins to tell one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the poor man with this little ewe lamb. And frankly, this story almost smacks of a parable. I, I don't think any of us are to be expected. I don't think the author expects us to believe that this is something that really happened. And Nathan does not seem to be covering that up uh, or even trying to cover that up. It's sort of presented like 
a parable. One commentator talks about the fact, though, that so often when we feel guilty, we tend to want to make more of a show of our righteousness. And so it feels like David is listening to this story, despite the fact it's set up uh, in a way that a parable might be set up. He is listening to it and responding to it as if it's a true story. The poor man, of course, had this ewe lamb. And let me tell you, Nathan really is laying it on thick. He's really drawing heavy parallels here. He, he, he talks about the way this man raised this lamb. He said it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. You can see the parallels being drawn to someone who has a beloved wife. And he says it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and the rich man needed to provide some food for the traveler. And then rather from taking, rather than taking from one of his own great flocks, he takes the ewe lamb from the poor man, slaughters it, and serves it to his guest. Now, there are lots of levels at which the Bible here is trying to show us the way that David's heart is molded by the Word of God. One, one of the things here is the fact that we are shown that one of these men is rich and one of these men is poor. And that's one of the things that God demands uh, in terms of justice is that the poor be treated with equity and righteousness by the rich. And so all there are all sorts of little clues in here, all sorts of little little aspects in here that are meant to pique David. They're, they're, they're meant to, to, to get a rise out of the king. Listen to how David responds to this story. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Doomed is the man who has done this. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now David is going beyond biblical justice here. He's so angry. I mean, he's so angry that he says this man deserves the death penalty, even though the law of God does not say that this man would deserve the death penalty. The fourfold restitution is what the law of God uh, would require. But what David says is that this man deserves to die. He is enraged. He's angry. And here it is. Here's the moment. The, the moment where David's fears are realized. The moment where his life will be undone. All of his anger. He's so mad. He's so frustrated uh, with this person. He is so angry at this injustice. We can just almost imagine him saying, this sort of thing would ne will never happen in my country, in my nation, in my kingdom. All of this anger, all of this righteous indignation is simply, cleverly, deftly, effectively thrown back on David's own head. You see what Nathan says? It's one of the most amazing moments in all of the Bible. David says, And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the rich man 
who stole the ewe lamb. You are the man who slaughtered this lamb. If you think this thing won't happen in your nation, if you think this thing won't happen in your country, if you think this thing won't happen in your kingdom, why don't you take a look at your own palace, at your own life, at your own heart? There's rot in Israel and it starts at the top. Through the prophet, God reminds David of all that he's done for him. All that he's given to him. And he reminds him of the gravity and the graveness of the sin which he's committed. What was done in secret, Nathan goes on to tell David, will be uncovered. He says God's punishment will be public. It will be before all Israel and before the sun. That is, what you tried to keep so secret, what you tried to keep silent, what you tried to hide, what you tried to cover up, God will uncover not only before all, all of Israel, but before all of the world it will happen not in the cover of darkness but under the sun that's what God's judgment will be like but I want you to see that David repents it's terse there's not much to be said but it's authentic so often that's how repentance works um, it's not always wordy sometimes I think we think it needs to be to be authentic but sometimes this is enough I have sinned against the Lord. is what David says. Immediately. No ifs, ands, or buts. No excuses. No explanations. Don't you know who I am? We might expect him to say. Don't you know that the king has a right to do this? Don't you know? who? How dare you, preacher, come here and talk to me today? I'm the king of Israel. No. I have sinned against the Lord. This afternoon, you might go grab your Bible and open up to the 51st Psalm that the superscript tells us is one David wrote on the occasion of this sin. And you can see a wordier uh, expression of this repentance, of this recognition of his own sin. But this is enough for today, is it not? I have sinned against the Lord. Doesn't this seem horrible? Can you imagine a worse moment in your life? And yet, this moment, as horrible as it is... It is not the catastrophe. The catastrophe is the sin. I, I think every church needs to be reminded of this reality. Sin is the problem, not the exposure of sin. I'll say this, the last 15, 20, 30, 40 years in the Southern Baptist Convention would be a lot different if we had this reality before our hearts and minds. Sin is the problem, not the exposure of sin. The exposure of sin is the grace of the Lord. This feels like a catastrophe to us. And we are so molded by a desire for things to look right and a thing, a desire for things to seem appropriate that we look at a moment like this and we say how catastrophic it is. But the sin was the catastrophe. This is actually a moment of grace. This moment that we're reading about is what J.R.R. Tolkien, the great author Tolkien, called a catastrophe. It's a moment that seems so dark and horrible, but it's actually being used for good. That's what the exposure of sin is. That's what repentance is. It's turning catastrophe on its head. This is God taking something awful and turning it into what is right, into what is good, into what is righteous. Repentance. Repentance. The exposure of your sin, the exposure of my sin and genuine repentance is the best thing that could happen to you today. It's the best thing that could happen to me today. 
What if that lingering conviction, what if that awful feeling, what if that gnawing darkness in your heart is actually the work of the Lord? What if it's not an impending catastrophe? What if it's the grace of God working its way into your life, setting you free from sin, bringing things out into the light that ought to be out in the light? What if the exposure that you dread so much is actually the light of the grace of the Lord? My friends, repentance and the opportunity to repent is grace. And church, I I want to say a word to all of us today. We must be ready to see sin brought into the light. We, We must be ready. If we are going to be a New Testament church, if we are going to be a gospel church, we must be prepared for sin to be brought to light. There should be no better place in the world to bring your sin than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet so often we feel the opposite, don't we? For the opposite so often. The last place in the world we'd want to bring our sin is to First Baptist Church. What will the Christians think down there? What they'll probably think, and at least what they ought to think, is you're a lot more like us than we thought. We're all sinners in need of God's grace, aren't we? There's no better place to bring your dirty laundry than First Baptist Church of Gadsden, than the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in a place where people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus are gathered together around His name and around His gospel. This is where you should bring it. The exposure that you're dreading is the grace of God in your life. The catastrophe of sin has already happened. Let's start the process of seeing it made right. Repentance is a sign of God's grace. But second of all, it's good of us to remember good for us to remember, that sin still has consequences for the repentant. Sin still has consequences even for the repentant. Here's the reality, my friends. We cannot escape the fact that we live in a Genesis 3 world. Part of what Nathan shared with David here is a word of judgment over David and his house. The sword will never depart from your house, he tells David. Evil will rise up from your own house, he tells David. And he tells David, you won't die, but the child that's been born unto you will. And so, because of God's judgment, the first son of David and Bathsheba becomes ill, becomes sick. During this time, David fasts and prays and begs the Lord to spare the child's life. And yet the Lord doesn't answer. After seven days of sickness, the child dies. And all the people in the house are afraid to tell David that the child has died. He's so intensely, from their perspective, mourned the child in its sickness that they think the mourning of its death will kill him. He might even just harm himself. When he hears of the child's death, he hears everybody whispering in the corner, and he's wise enough to know what they're talking about. What does he do? He washes, he anoints himself, he changes clothes, he worships, and he eats, and it puzzles all those people around him. Why were you mourning the child when it was alive and now acting normal, now that the child's dead? David answers, verses 22 and 23, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? 
Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And here we see the grave, the awful. The consequences that just about make my stomach turn to think of. That this child is dead because of the sin of his parents. But it's a reminder for all of us. Sin has consequences even when we repent. Even when we repent, sin still has consequences. Repentance is not a get out of jail free card. God's grace does not mean that we are delivered from every consequence in this life. That's why I try to be so careful in preaching the gospel that I don't imply that all your problems will be immediately solved if you follow Jesus. All your problems will be solved one day, but maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not immediately upon your repentance. God is good. He loves His children. But there are still consequences of living in a sinful world. And there are consequences of committing sin in our lives. I I want you to see how awful and heartbreaking and miserable sin is. I I want this passage to see what it is. To expose for you what sin really is. Right now, some of you are tempted in, in thinking that sin is fun. I don't mean that every every time. Uh, I don't mean to be a school marm or a, a fuddy duddy or whatever else. You know, I think we should celebrate in this life. I think we should have a good life, enjoy the good gifts God's given us. But some of us think, man, why did God make it where all the best stuff is sin? But I, I want to tell you something, my friends. Whatever it is you think sin is going to do for you. At best, there's an extreme law of diminishing returns in sin. (laughs) You have to escalate for it to keep doing the job you want it to do. But almost always, sin is its own punishment. Uh, Sin is awful. It's an awful thing to live in. Even when you feel like you've gotten away from the consequences, the guilt is so much to deal with, as we see from the mysterious stranger we talked about earlier. Uh, I want you to know, my friends, sin... God God won't lie to you. God would never lie to you. Uh, Sin's not fun. And the consequences are dire. Let, let this episode in the Bible be a warning against sin for you. Grace, God's grace does not mean that there will be no consequences for sin. I, I said this in my study a, a bunch of times. I think I've said it here before. If I really thought sin was good for everyone, I promise you I would stop preaching against it. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what you guys do. I want what's best for you. I, I, I want what's best. I'm pointing you to the Bible and pointing you away from sin and, and toward righteousness in Christ because it's the best way to live. It's the best gift God offers us. Finally, God is graciously at work despite sin. Not only does sin have consequences even for the repentant, but finally, God is graciously at work despite sin. David, verse 24, comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. I bet it's a name many of you have heard. It's David's heir, the next king of Israel. He sent a message. The Bible says he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And then we have this last little story at the end of chapter 12. It'd be easy to look over. 
A town called Rabbah is captured. The story of the Ammonite War began in chapter 10 and is concluded in chapter 12. And in, parenthetically inside it is a story of David and Bathsheba. But the, the war is nonetheless important because it shows the expansion of David's territories. And here, Joab has got Rabbah on the ropes. He's taken over their water supply, it seems like. And he calls David and says, you better come because we don't want this city to be named after me. We want the king to come conquer the city. And so David comes and he conquers Rabbah, thus opening up his reign and expanding his territory into the region of Syria. And these two highlights are interesting, aren't they? First, a son is born. Another son. I think later we find in other books this is the fourth son of David and Bathsheba. And yet here the author highlights him because he is the heir. The son who is born is Solomon. The name means one who brings peace. And then he's also called by another name, Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. So he highlights the son who's born. And then the author highlights this war against the Ammonites that's conclusively won, thus expanding the territory of Israel on into Syria. So here you see a highlight here of the dynasty of David, the future king, the heir who's coming into the world, the promises of God. And you see a highlight of the dominion of David. The promises of God, the land being given back to the people of God, the blessing of the Lord spreading over the earth like the waters cover the sea. Do you see how God is still at work despite the sin in his original program? What he always planned to do through David is to build a dominion and a dynasty. And God is still doing it even on the other end of one of the most notorious sins in the history of the world. God's still at work according to His purpose of grace despite sin. Now, grace doesn't downplay the seriousness of sin, which we see throughout this passage. God's not saying sin doesn't matter. What God's doing is continuing to work according to His grace despite sin. Grace doesn't get eradicated by sin. We can't give in to either of these temptations. One, to let grace... Uh, act as a foil to the seriousness of sin sin, or to imagine that grace goes away when sin happens. No, God is still at work no matter what's going on in the world. God used David even though he was a sinner. You hear it said all the time. And often what we mean by that is David was so gifted and David so talented, David was so wonderful that God overlooked his sins in order to have such a great leader like David. No, friends, that's, that's not the case at all. It's not why David remained king despite his sins. Over and over again, I've tried to show you this, the, the words that are described, to, that are used to describe the rejected king Saul's sins are used in the same context to describe the glorified and exalted king David's sins. So, so, so be careful in thinking like that. No, David's greatness... The fact that David is a man after God's own heart. David stayed on the throne. It's summed up in his repentance. His response to the grace of God. David's greatness isn't rooted in his greatness in battle. It's not rooted in his shrewd leadership. It's not rooted in his wisdom as king. It's not in his abilities. It's not in his own sinlessness or his own righteousness. It's not in his performance. It's not like God's like, well, it's just this one bad sin. Let's move on. No, there are other sins. We're going to see more as the book goes on. Things are going to get worse for David and for the line of David before they get better. 
No, David's root greatness is rooted in the fact that he followed God despite his sin. It's rooted in the fact he's a man after God's own heart. That doesn't mean he was so personally righteous. It means that he followed God by faith. That he trusted the Lord. That he responded in repentance. What no other king would do in these stories so far. Given the opportunity, David humbly repented. And God built out his dominion and God preserved his dynasty in order that he might put his very own son, who was perfectly righteous, who was perfectly holy, in order that he might put him on the throne not only of Israel, not only of the Ammonites, not only of Syria, not only of the Middle East, but of the entire cosmos. God has placed his son on the throne, that descendant of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, and he did it out of an abundance of grace in order that sinners might be saved, in order that today, 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 you might come to a crossroad and take the burden of sin that you're carrying and lay it down at the feet of Jesus, expose it in the light of God's grace and enter into a kingdom that will never end. How will you respond to the grace of God that is available to you today in Christ? Would you lay your sin down and would you embrace God's grace in repentance and faith? I hope, I hope you will. I want to offer an invitation today. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time, be my joy today to talk to you about what it means to trust Christ. I believe if you'll turn from your sins and repentance, turn to God in faith through Jesus, I believe you will be saved. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you need someone to talk to, I'll be waiting on you this morning. Second of all, you may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I, I, um, I need uh, some time to pray. This altar is open to you. If you need someone to talk to, I'm here. If you want to do business with the Lord right where you are, you sure can do that. He's, he's everywhere. He'll deal with you right where you are. Pastor, I need to repent. This, these, these moments are for you. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. It'd be my joy today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want you to respond to the Lord as this song plays. Let's pray together and then I invite you to come. Let's pray.